What happens is that you have a system of policing and prisons and prosecutors and surveillance that's happening on top of an economic system that's exploitative, that's extractive, and that's exclusionary, right? It creates haves and haves nots. It creates ins and outs. It creates people who are housed and people who are homeless. It creates people on one side of the borders and it puts people on a different side of the borders, right? Police, prisons, prosecutor surveillance manage that system. They manage who's exploited. They manage who's excluded. They manage whose labor and time is extracted from them. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, 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 and welcome. My name is Marbury Staley Butts. I use she and her pronouns, and I'm the director of Law for Black Lives. And for the next hour and a half or so, I'm also going to be the host and the moderator of this amazing conversation uh, with Derica and Amna about movement, lawyering, and liberation. Um, we are incredibly excited um, to be joining y'all for this conversation, and thank you for tuning in. For folks who are watching on YouTube, um, please put any questions or thoughts or comments you have in those comments. And for folks who are watching or following on Twitter, please respond to all questions and our comments. We would love for this to be as interactive as possible. Um, so it is today to have this important conversation about the role and the possibility of lawyers to push and we are also here to celebrate and to honor the official launch of Law for Black Lives paid membership. And so I'm super excited to do a really quick grounding in Law for Black Lives, or LBL as we call ourselves, um, and a bit about our origins and why this conversation about how lawyers can further liberation is so incredibly important to the mission and the purpose of our organization. So for folks who do not know, L4BL is a network of over 6,000 lawyers, legal workers, law students, and organizers who are committed to liberation of Black people and all people across the globe and in the U.S. And we all believe deeply in the power and the necessity of organizing as the engine for long-term social change. Um, Although we are formally launching membership today, our origins actually start over five years ago. And they start in the streets um, and, quite frankly, the hotel bars of Ferguson and Baltimore and New York City, where there was a moment much like this one, um, where there was mass uprisings in response to the visual, the kind of constant, constant barrage of visual images of Black people being killed at the hands of police, alongside the realities that Black communities across the country and the globe were being defunded, not supported and under-resourced for basic needs. Um, and so in light of that, in response to that, we saw mass uprisings. And there was a group of lawyers and legal workers and law students who were gathering in those places the organic movement happening. And there were a few assessments that we made collectively. The first assessment was the idea that although there were lots and lots of legal organizations, lots of lawyers, that the radical Black movements of that moment were not actually being supported. 
and there wasn't a robust infrastructure that was supporting the leadership of Black folks, often working class, often queer, often femme folks who are on the front line of this struggle. And so um, the lawyers and legal workers who gathered, who had that politic, um, really wanted to think about how to build and create something that was responsive to, that elevated the leadership of and followed the leadership of um, the folks who were on the ground, who were often making radical demands of these systems, who were not kind of respectable politics, um, and were more and more embracing abolition. The second assessment that the lawyers and the legal workers who came together in the aftermath of Ferguson and Baltimore made was this reality that those of us who felt called into movement, but those of us who felt called into transformation, who felt called into supporting radical Black movement, that it was a very isolating, exhausting, and kind of wearing space to be in. And that often we were alone inside of our organizations um, in this fight. And that there wasn't a space necessarily for folks to go to be uh, supported, to hone their skills, um, to build community or to get respite. And so out of that assessment, um, a group of lawyers and legal workers led by um, the staff at Center for Constitutional Rights and Poby Shaw, who was there at that point, brought together a conference um, called Law for Black Lives in 2015. And I think that many of us um, who are on this panel and beyond assume that a few hundred folks might show up. We're interested in having this conversation about what is it that we can do for those of us who got our legal um, education and our legal tools? What can we do to support radical movement? What can we do to dismantle these structures that are killing our people. Um, and I think many of us thought that a few hundred people might show up or show interest. Instead, over 3,000 lawyers and legal workers signed up and 1,000 made the trip to New York City. And so what was clear to us um, five years ago or six years ago um, is that there was a real hunger and a real appetite among lawyers and legal workers to figure out what they could do to support and to build the sustainability of movement. And not just movement, like not your mama civil rights movement, but radical movement. What it meant to actually unroot um, capitalism, anti-blackness, um, the prison industrial complex, what it meant to actually unroot those and to place something else in its place. And that often means undermining the privilege of lawyers. And so we were incredibly moved um, by the commitment of so many lawyers to do that. And so now, six years later, or almost six years later, um, some things have changed, but many things have not changed. The reality is that every single day, police are still killing Black people across this country. The reality is that every single day, our communities remain occupied, that we're seeing huge underinvestment in our health, our employment, our education, while we're seeing the occupation of our streets. Um, and we also continue to see the scapegoating of Black people and of movement um, for harm across this country. And so we believe at Law for Black Lives that now is an amazing moment and an essential moment to launch our paid membership model. And the idea of the membership model is really to solidify and to formalize the political community that we have been sustaining and seeding and building for over five years. Over 6,000 of you have signed up, have volunteered, have showed up and showed out for movement. And the idea of our membership model is to really invite you in to collectively resourcing ourselves to be able to continue to create a home for lawyers and legal workers to hone their skills um, and to really begin and continue to solve movement. 
And a key part of that um, is not only around getting discounts for CLEs and being invited into different spaces and having access to our platform, um, but it also is about being in constant, constant sharpening of our politics. And so we are incredibly excited to be launching our membership today with two OGs of the Law for Black Lives family, both of whom um, were incredibly important and instrumental, both in our founding, but I think in many ways um, are really the manifestation of the values that we started with. And so I think I want to start by acknowledging that there are lots of different ways to radically loyal and to movement loyal. There are many folks who are public defenders, who people like um, Blake at Art City defenders, people across the country, um, like Amanda, who runs a, a shop in Detroit, who are doing incredible hands-on frontline work that are essential to both developing the praxis and the politics of movement learning. Today, uh, we have folks who are writers and academics to help ground us in some of the theories and the politics that undergird and underlie that. And so um, I want to just name that our network is robust and it's full of lots of tactics. I think it's Mark Anthony um, from Los Angeles who says we have to be very, very strict and disciplined in our purpose, but multiple and diverse in our tactics. And so we really invite that. And many of the programming um, that Amika, our membership director, and Kat have planned over the next few months includes bringing in the skills sets, the expertise, and the experience of lawyers who operate in all different sorts of spheres. But I'm super, super excited today to welcome Amna and Derica. I want to just start by saying that these are two friends um, who have done so much to sharpen my own politics over the last five and six years, and I feel deeply honored to be in community with y'all. I have grown exponentially, um, and I hope that today folks also learn from the sharpness that each of y'all bring. So I'm going to do short introductions, um, but folks can Google, I believe, in everybody on this call to do that. You're on YouTube. YouTube, so I know you have the skills um, to learn more about the practices and accomplishments of these folks. But Amna, um, who is, again, one of the founders of Law for Black Lives, is a law professor at Ohio State. She's an incredible thinker and writer around abolition, anti-capitalism, and radical movements. Um, she has a long, long history inside of movements um, and, again, has been a friend who has really sharpened Law for Black Lives in so many ways, as well as myself and many of us in movement. I think if you ask folks in Ohio who have been doing this work on the front lines, Amna is a constant friend and comrade. We also have Derica, um, who is one of my movement crushes. I adore Derica. Derica and I first met actually when she was at law school um, and really was seeding movement at Harvard, was, was using, and my grandma used to kind of put your hands in the soil where you stand. Uh, Derica was seeding the revolution side of the halls of Harvard, and from what I understand, have changed the ways that students think about the law in that space. Um, and Derica went on to work for Advancement Project, which shout out to Advancement Project and all of the work they do for movement lawyering, um, and it's called Currently finishing or has finished um, an incredible book on abolition. And really, I think for the last few years has been one of the leading voices to kind of bring abolition home um, and really bring folks to it. So I am super pumped for this conversation. The goals of this conversation really are to ground us in the politics um, of abolition, of anti-capitalism, and really of radical lawyering and what it means, um, why we believe it, and how we do it. So I want to welcome you both. Thank you all so much for being here today. So I'm gonna the, the goal for us is to really have a conversation conversation and kind of be as fluid as we can. We really want to welcome folks to ask questions. Um, if there are concepts that you want to explore, please do that. Um, and we will try to address them. But I want to start with this moment and this context we're in. As folks know, yesterday marked the one year anniversary of the killing 
of George Floyd. And of course, we know from the work of Malcolm X Grassroots Project, an incredible black liberation organizing shop, that every 28 hours, a black person is killed by police. Um, and so this is not a real event, but last summer, um, the killing of George Floyd captured the nation. And one thing that I was really struck by yesterday in looking over all of the kind of TV and editorials about George Floyd's death was this narrative that somehow George Floyd's death kind of changed everything, that there was a lot about kind of how it changed America, foster racial recognition, um, that the trial was a vindication of our justice system. There was a lot of talk about that. And that kind of continued to mainstream media, despite the fact that throughout the trial, literally every other day, we were hearing about another Black person killed by the police. And I think as lawyers and as legal workers, this idea that having a trial and a conviction somehow legitimizes these systems is really something for us to reckon with and to think about what is our complicity in that? What does that mean for radical lawyering? What does that mean for abolition? And so I wanted to just ask both of you um, your hot take kind of on this moment, um, what you think the trial and the killing and the coverage says about the law, both its possibilities um, and its limitations, and how y'all are processing this moment. And I'll let either of you answer. That was a pass up. I'll that one to you. All right. Um, hi, everyone. It's really, really nice to be here. Um, and I echo and share all the love, respect and admiration for Marbre and Derica that was shared um, by Marbre. Um, so um, the point that you just made is very interesting, because I think one of the things that makes me think about is how one is about the um, the progress narrative at the heart of liberalism that's always trying to vindicate, um, you know, structural inequality, um, the histories of enslavement and colonialism, and really any particular wrong, um, as if we are constantly kind of trotting towards a better place. I think one of the really powerful things about the election of Trump was that it caused a kind of reckoning for liberals about the falsity of that story and the reality that we live in a world where there's a constant kind of struggle between different kinds of social forces and that struggle is dynamic. It's not linear. And, you know, um, and that, you know, that's something that I think as people on the left, as people committed to social movements, we really have to try to understand. Um, but that's not to deny that, you know, this moment is particular and important. Um, the trial of Derek Chauvin, I think, reflected the way that um, the protests created um, or provoked or deepened the crisis of the criminal legal system and in a sense of democracy in the United States more broadly and its kind of racialized, um, hierarchical, stratified nature um, that, you know, has been deepening over the course of the last decade in particular through a series of um, occupations, protest, organizing, and social movement activity that I kind of, you know, I tend to root or start with Occupy, but think, you know, there's other ways to tell that story. Um, and so um, Chauvin's murder of George Floyd sets off these unprecedented multiracial summer-long protests. It's built on organizing within the movement for Black Lives, within the larger left, within and importantly, through abolitionist organizations like Critical Resistance or Insight, 
um, and then kind of causes this very different seeming trial um, of, you know, we know that police are not prosecuted very often, but the narratives in this trial seemed pretty different than ones we've seen in the past. And so you have a system that is like sufficiently in crisis that it's feeling like it needs to um, you know, as I, th I think Phil Agnew put it this way on social media, that they're kind of like sacrificing a toenail in order to preserve the body. Um, and of course, since 2014 in the Ferguson rebellion, um, we've seen a number of police officers that are prosecuted. Worth noting that a number of those people happen to be police of color or women cops. And that's maybe something we could, we, you know, it's maybe not, won't talk about extensively now, whether you talk about Chinese American Peter Leung, who killed Akai Gurley. Somali-American Mohammed Noor, who killed Justin Diamond, a white woman um, in Minneapolis, or Kim Potter, who killed Dante Wright in Brooklyn Center. Like you have, you know, these non-white man cops, and we know that most cops are white men getting prosecuted. And so those dynamics are at play in terms of who they prosecute um, as well, both in terms of the police officer and the victim. Um, but so one of the characteristics of these systems, obviously, of policing and prisons is that they function with impunity because they're systems that perpetuate white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, these systems function with impunity unless and until people come together to counteract, to refuse to participate, to really demand something different. And so you get this prosecution, you get this conviction, and then as we all know, within, you know, even before the actual verdict is announced, Micaiah um, is killed here in Ohio. Um, and not only do the police killings continue, um, but the conviction doesn't bring George Floyd back. Um, it doesn't mitigate poli police violence. Um, and it doesn't, um, if anything, it's an attempt kind of to preserve the legitimacy of law and police and a state that's very much formed around and through, and an economy that's formed around and through police and prison um, violence. Um, so I have, I could say a lot more, but I'll pause there and just see, Derek, what you want to add. Yes. Also, thank you so, so much, Marbury, for the introduction, introduction for setting the, the foundation. Sorry, I'm tongue-tied. For setting the foundation for the invitation. And it's always good to be in conversation with you and Amna. So this is, this is good. Um, I completely agree with what Amna said about the types of cops who typically get prosecuted. I would add, um, oh Jesus, Amber Geiger, right? Who killed both of Jean and I would add Daniel Holtz-Claw who's convicted of sexual assault of the mostly black and poor women sex workers in Oklahoma. So I, absolutely. But also what happens when it is a white cop and the white cop does get convicted, we say this is a message, right? And so the first thing that I thought about was um, Walter Scott, right? When Michael Slager gets prosecuted, he's literally in the cell next to Dylan Roof. And we say this is it, right? This is going to send a message. This is the most obvious case of police violence. Here's a black man who's literally running away. We see footage of... Slager, who goes towards Scott, we watch him, many of us watch him drop a taser next to him. We see the, the, the lies in the police report. And then it's like, oh, wait, this video breaks. And it's like, okay, now we're absolutely going to get justice. But what happened to Slager did not discourage 
Derek Chauvin from murdering George Floyd. He didn't say, whoa, wait, 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 wait. The last cop who, who got caught up in this, you know, they, they were sent to the slammer, let me stop. And so what's happening is that we see a contradictory messaging around what happens through police convictions. On the one end, we say, if we send killer cops to jail, it will send a message that if you decide to take someone's life, a black person's life, then you will be punished. And police would think twice about their behavior. But then we have the Supreme Court that says, cops have the power to have split second decision-making on whether to use force. So if cops are supposed to stop and think about the, their behavior, and the Supreme Court says they have split-second decision-making, how do you reconcile what a cop is supposed to do? Because the law right now says they don't have to think twice. They don't have to take a second to think. They can shoot and kill and think later. You can't apply hindsight. And so the messaging around the convictions and the messaging around accountability doesn't comport with what the Supreme Court says around the Constitution. And it's just so frustrating to listen to lawyers, to read lawyers who say, this sends a message because it's just it just contradicts Graham v. Connor. <laughs> it just contradicts what the Supreme Court says, right? And so that's like a very like legal thing that really bothers me around the sending the message, but it's very, very true. Um, I also think in this particular moment, I absolutely agree with what Amna said too around giving the criminal legal system more legitimacy. Can y'all hear the bump, the ice cream truck in the background? Okay, it's like, it's interesting talking about police violence and it's like an ice cream truck outside. It's like, it's throwing me off a lot, especially since there are police that use ice cream trucks for community uh, building, community policing. So hopefully that's not a cop ice cream truck. Yes, but what Amna said around legitimacy, because what has happened is that all of these people who have been touting criminal justice reform, criminal legal reform, they are co-opting the language of our movements and saying, this isn't justice, but this is a step in the right direction. This isn't justice, but this is accountability. And for lots of people who feel as if their options are nothing or something, accountability feels good, right? For people who feel like they're under the constant pressure of police violence, a conviction feels like relief. It feels like, oh man, it's something. And just because something is relief, that it's relieving, it doesn't mean that it's good, but it feels like the tension is gone. And so I think for lots of people, it provided that sigh of relief, but unfortunately that comes with legitimacy because now, now the goal is to get more cops convicted. Now the goal is to have more accountability until justice comes. And then when you ask the people who who say until justice comes looks like what, what does that feel like it's you know better policing it's the kind of police that everyone can enjoy it's as if police are this neutral objective institution that is capable of providing safety and protection to everyone it wasn't meant to do that and so you can't do that so the goalpost is always moving for what justice is going to look like because that's not what police were intended to do. And so instead of getting to the root causes of problems, instead of trying to figure out how to undermine police contact, you have people like Joe Biden who's promising to give more money to police, who's showing that what Amna said, this is a, a step forward, this is a linear progress, this is, this is how we achieve. We have Nancy Pelosi thanking George Floyd for dying, for sacrificing his life so that he could get justice. Yeah, I know the meme with like the math, 
like the G, the trigonometry meme of like the white woman looking at all the yes that is that's the moment that I had so not only are am I witnessing so many people say this is accountability I've seen people turn so many people whose lives have been stolen into martyrs into martyrs in the name of policing progress and that's so frustrating because these weren't people who went into the streets willingly committed or knew the risk of going to this corner store these are people who fought and resisted to live their lives to go home to be with their families and now we're thanking them for giving us justice and it's 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 unsettling um to say the least and so what I am most excited about is the movement that has rejected convictions as the sole source of support and said we need to continue to defund the police. We need to abolish the police. And for some people who feel relieved by this moment, how do we capture them and continue to push them towards more radical politics? Shay, thank you for that. I th- I think this idea, too, about what is justice is so important, because in the same way I think the police would have meant to keep us safe, the justice, quote unquote, system was never meant to actually deliver any kind of justice. Right. And so um, in so many ways, it falls short because it wasn't actually created um, to ensure that people were rehabilitated provided support, were healed. Those are not the objectives or goals of this system. It's about punishment um, and often it's a distraction. So thank you both for that. I think both of you alluded to my next question, which is about radical. And at LPBL, we... Uh, oh, Omni, do you want to... Yeah, I want to... So can I get into something a little bit more before we move on? Um, I want to think a little bit about this co-optation question because on the one hand, like, it's true that liberals or like capital D Democrats will say like, okay, this is justice. And I think sometimes like, um, you know, among social movement people or people on the left or an abolitionist organizing, like people say, well, we're being co-opted. And then that sometimes feels also like the end of the equation. And I think um, it's important. I, I would like to hear from both of you how you think about this, because it feels like, so I think the indictment and prosecution of Chauvin just like the conjuring of progressive prosecutors um, is kind of um, efforts by the system to re-legitimate itself in the face of fundamental challenge. And so on the one hand, you can say, okay, this indictment, this prosecution, these progressive prosecutors, this is co-option. And um, of course it is, I'm not saying that it's not, but I think like there's a way in which people feel deeply demoralized by that. And to me, like as much as I find it demoralizing, I also think to kind of live in that space of feeling I'm demor- we're demoralized because this was co-opted is to gloss over something else that we know, which is that the depth and historical nature of these structures will not be overcome overnight. And our opponents are not going to just one day say, Okay. Yep. You're right. We're taking down all the prisons and police, and um, we are, um, you know, get, are, you know, giving the land back and all of the things. Um, and so, I guess I'm just curious how you two think about it because it's a question that comes up a lot when I talk to other people. This question of co-optation, and I feel this kind of like, um, you know, that it's a way to kind of feel defeated. And I think as mu- and I think it's a, as much as. It's just, it feels to me like part of the process of struggle that we have to kind of shift how we relate to, because as much as we know that the conviction of Chauvin or, or progressive prosecutors are not what we're fighting for, um, and it is the system re-legitimating itself, it feels like part of the process of building the world 
that we want um, because it's forcing the other side to kind of shift a little bit. And it points to and, remi- and reminds us in a way, I think, of how long the road is ahead, um, but that, you know, we can cause shifts. Yeah, I can I can try to respond to that as I drop the C word in in my response. And so I think one thing that it makes me think of is how we have to be sharper in our analysis, our demands and our critiques. And so, for example, I hate conceding conceding to the phrase progressive prosecutor because it doesn't really mean anything. So then. Kamala Harris gets to be a progressive prosecutor. Larry Krasner gets to be a progressive prosecutor. Kim Fox gets to be a progressive. Any of these people get to be progressive prosecutors because that language, it's, we we have to determine and contest what that is. And so if we want to decarceral prosecutor or decriminalize incarcer- um, prosecutor, that gives us at least a different terrain to organize around. I think similarly of... Um, um, what what my friends in the UK are pushing me now around immigration lawyers. So they don't say, do you know someone who does immigration lawyers? They say, do you know someone who does anti-border work? Because it's going to be much harder for D, for DHS to be like, okay, we're anti-border, right? But they will say, oh, we believe in comprehensive immigration reform, right? And so it's like, how are we making sure and, and describing the world that we want that we're also putting forth language that's less easily taken from us. I think defund the police is a huge break to me from Black Lives Matter. Because, like, ironically, anyone can kind of say Black Lives Matter and mean lots of different things. And we're even finding that with defund the police, people have different meanings. But it, at least it provides a little bit more clarity. And so it's like, well, in, in building the world that we want and, and challenging the people who who's able to take our language and like make whatever with it, how do we make sure that we're making that a little bit harder for them? So I love anti-border work. I love defund and abolish for these reasons. I love, um, what's the other one I've been, oh yeah, like the decarceral prosecutor versus a progressive prosecutor. These make so much more sense to me in my organizing practices um, because I think it gets us closer to, to what we're trying to do. And yeah, that stuff can be co-opted too, but it also means we're starting from a different point than conceding to language that liberals can easily just take from us and, you know, do a whole whatever around it to make it seem like we're on the same side. They're conflating these terms because it's it's going to become harder to know who's radical, who's liberal, who's fighting for justice, right? It's all going to sound the same. So we have to remember which traditions that we're in. And I think the language that we use helps us to remember which traditions that we're in. Um, and then I think it can still accomplish what you're saying. I'm going to take your point. I think it still can accomplish us moving towards that world that we want and they'll probably shapeshift, but maybe they'll shapeshift on different terms. And so did we see police cuts in 2014 when we were saying Black Lives Matter? I don't think so. Do we see budget cuts to police when we say defund the police now? Yes. And I think that matters, right? So how how can we, we at least give ourselves a head start to be less co-opted in the future? I do though think that Part of what I think you're getting at, Amna, is the reality that co-option is is a show of our own power. 
And I don't think that that's like an invitation to give into it, but I think we should celebrate that in 2020 saying defund is actually a show of power. The, the fact that one they own, like it's not about body cameras, but it's about something else, I think is a manifestation and articulation of our power. But I, I think this idea, man, I, I, this Justice and Policing Act for me is a really powerful example of like there was this incredible amount of energy. You have people on the streets across the country and the globe who are very, very clear in their calling for the defunding of police um, and, and the idea of policing kind of stepping back. And the response by Congress is to use that language to actually insert millions of dollars into policing in the form of anti-bias training and all this other BS, right? And so I think the reality is that I think co-option on the upside is an articulation and manifestation of the power that movement is building, that co-option is even possible and necessary. But the reality is that it's it's meant to channel all power into reformist reforms um, that move us in the wrong direction. So I, I just... I agree with there, and I think you know your work on about kind of transformative versus reformist reforms and the work of CR and others is so important in our discernment of not getting caught up in proposals and demands that actually don't move us towards um, towards abolition or towards a transformation of these systems. Um, so yeah, I think that's a good question, though. I wonder too. I feel like this is a good bridge in some ways to this question of radical. And and at Alphabet, we're obsessed with the idea of radical. And I, you know, speaking of co-option, I'm not sure if we co-opted it or someone else did, honestly. But there's a lot. I remember, like in the kind of Trump era and moment, the Trump era isn't over to be clear. But during the election, there was a lot of talk about kind of like radical Trumpers. Um, and I was like, yo, that's us. So we the radical ones. And and we rely a lot on Ella Baker's definition of radical, which is grasping at the root of a problem, of really addressing not just the symptoms or the manifestations, but refusing that and instead going to the root. And so when we think about the Chauvin trial, um, the constant killings, the occupation, the pandemic, and who who died and got killed as a result of that, I think the invitation is to not just treat those, but to treat the anti-Blackness, the capitalism that's at the root of all of those things, right? And I think part of what we're talking about just now around corruption and, um, and language we use is about getting to like what is the what is the root what is the cause um, and we get so distracted um, for good reason with all the symptoms and so I'm curious for both of y'all I think for me there's a real challenge and has always been around by becoming a lawyer in many ways we are arming ourselves with the tools of this system um, in some ways we are complicit um, because of our privilege inside the system we're learning this language um, and practicing inside of arenas that are often um, that exclude many of our people um, and so I'm curious for y'all how do you both think about holding a radical analysis but also think about lawyering which is often an inside game um, and what is your relationship to radicalism how do you define it do you think you're doing radical lawyering what does that even mean to you um, but curious about this thread about radical. There you go. See, hand it off once and then you get a hand off the next time. <laughs> I see, I see, I see. So I didn't have the my first time being introduced to the word radical was around Jeremiah Wright, Reverend Jeremiah Wright, and when Obama was running for office. It was the first time that I heard radical in a way that was a bit strange to me because I was, I don't know, I was in college. And at that point I had mostly heard the word radical around Islam. It was like, it was, this is like post 9-11. It's just like, that was the thing that you were supposed to be afraid of. Um, 
But once once President Obama was running for office, all these sermons started coming out around uh, his pastor from Trinity United Church of Chicago. And I remember listening to the sermons and being like, wait, 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 time out, time out. That's radical to say that America has a race problem, right? To, to say that, you know, Black people are oppressed in the United States and should, you know, think about this and fight against this. I was so confused. Like, wait, what radical sort of means anything. It sort of means everything. And I, I thought that by describing Jeremiah Wright as radical Reverend Wright in the media, that it was just a huge miss, was was it? It was just misleading the public around the nature of what was happening. The same thing with Derrick Bell. And so there were all these um, videos that were coming out of President Obama or then Canada Obama shaking hands with Derrick Bell at a protest while they were at Harvard. And I was still in college, I think. And it was just like, oh, this is the father of critical race theory. This is 10 years ago. This is like more than 10 years ago, right? Talk about how things repeat themselves. This is critical race theory. Oh man, this is horrible. This is who's going to be our, the leader of the free world. And I was like, man, why do they keep calling these people radical? Why? This is so messed up. They're just talking about race. And then once I started developing a political analysis, like through organizing, through political education, learning different definitions of radical I didn't want to disassociate. I no longer wanted to disassociate radical from Derek Bell or radical from Reverend Jeremiah Wright. It was like, oh, this is a good thing, right? It shifted from being like, what is this? So this is a bad thing. You're applying this label to like, oh no, they are getting to the roots of a problem. They're, they're getting to the roots of white supremacy in Christianity. They're getting to the roots of white supremacy and capitalism that's embedded in the structure of the law. And I became deeply attracted to this idea of radical. The other thing that happened while I was going through like all of this political education with other organizers is that I started, sorry, it's so loud on this block. <laughs> um, I started learning about the black radical tradition. And so similar to what's happening with a lot of the language now, I just assumed that if you were a black person or a brown person and you talked about justice, we were calling all on the same team. Right? We all wanted the same thing. We all wanted to get free. It was all wrong. And then once I started learning about the Black radical tradition and which organizers and which you know um, freedom fighters, which revolutionaries were talking about decolonization, we're talking about capitalism, we're talking about communism and socialism, we're talking about you know health care for everyone. I realized like, oh, these people don't want the same thing. There are traditions of people who are trying to undermine all of these oppressive systems in the United States and, and beyond. And then there's these other traditions who believe that if these systems were just diverse enough, they would make more people comfortable by being in them. And so I realized I didn't want to be in that tradition, or I didn't want to be in the tradition of lawyers who were fighting and fighting and fighting to use the law as a way to make people more comfortable. I wanted to be in the tradition of lawyers who were organizing against oppressive systems. I wanted to be more like Nelson Mandela and B.R.M. Becker. Like I wanted to be a part of these traditions of lawyers who were representing students 
who were doing sit-ins with Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP said, no, I wanted to be in the traditions of lawyers who were with organizers. I wanted to be like Lynn Holt and Florence Kennedy, all of these other people who were trying to build people power and not trying to build legal power and just not trying to make these systems more colorful without really paying attention to the concentration of power that was within them. And so when I think of radical, when I think of radical lawyering, I try to think of the different traditions of lawyers. You know, how do we determine who's in which traditions? What are they fighting for? Um, And then I try to fall in line with the tradition that I that I see myself in. I hope that was clear, but it, it's, it's that, that that's what I take to be radical lawyering. That was so juicy. I feel like there was a lot of things folks should Google in that. And also I really appreciate the, like the kind of genealogy of it. Cause I think that many of us came to radical not as like a, obviously like that's what we want to be at, but as instead as like, it's been villainized in so many ways and it's been discouraged for us to actually like ask questions about root causes and go beyond it. So I really appreciated that. Thank you. I'm going to leave. Yeah. So I want to start by actually reading a short excerpt from an article that Cornell West wrote in 1990 called the role of law in progressive politics. Um, and in general, if people in the network want to read and discuss it, I think this is a really important piece. It's written at a very different political moment, but has a lot of insights for us. And so this is just from the first page. There's a lot more throughout this relatively short essay. He says in the piece he's going to, and here, this is where I'll start to read, try to carve out a vital democratic space left between the skilla of upbeat liberalism that harbors excessive hopes for the law and the charabitis of downbeat leftism that promotes exorbitant doubts about law. My argument rests on three basic claims. First, the fundamental forms of social misery in American society neither can be adequately addressed nor substantially transformed within the context of existing legal apparatus structures. Serious and committed work within the circumscribed context, however, remains indispensable if progressive politics is to have any future. Second, this crucial work will be primarily defensive unless... Okay, and here, this is where the different political moment makes a difference. Unless significant extra parliamentary social motion brings power and pressure to bear on the prevailing status quo. Social motion and movements presuppose either grassroots citizen participation, incredible progressive projects, or rebellious acts of desperation that threaten the social order. Third, progressive legal practitioners confront the difficult task of linking their defensive work within the legal system to possible social motion and movements that attempt to fundamentally transform American society. So there's a lot to talk about there, but I think um, one of the many useful things about this is to try to think about both kind of like defensive legal work and offensive legal work and how to link legal work to organizing and the building of movements. So I want to talk about that. I also want to say what radical lawyering is not, and it's not the things that a lot of conventional, even public interest lawyering is. So for example, I think in the legal profession, um, you know, until fairly recently, and arguably for most of us still now, like the U.S. Constitution functions almost as a religious authority that we're supposed to, that's supposed to be kind of like our primary, like, you know, thing that we're kind of orienting towards. Um, And I think part of radical lawyering is about rejecting, as I think Derek was just saying, not towards law as the goal or the power of the legal system as the goal, but as people power as the goal. The second is to refuse to legitimate 
the system, um, which again, like a lot of times when lawyers are trained or practice kind of figuring out what kind of legal arguments to make, the assumption is that you kind of bow down to the authority of the court and the law. And I'm not kind of suggesting that, there, you know, that that's inappropriate, but you have to kind of consider the strategic, you know, that that's a strategic choice that you're making and to refuse to think about other ways that you might um, you know, that you might delegitimate the system within it as a way to kind of force particular kinds of concessions or build a particular kind of movement or a counter narrative is really important. Um, the second thing is that we're not trying to like fix issues. That's also the common way that reform gets talked about in terms of lawyers. Like, you know, there's like a problem when you want to fix it. Um, and that's not what I don't see radical lawyering to be about. Radical lawyering is about building the power of people um, and building a world where people can self-determine the conditions of their lives, have their basic needs met. Um, and so um, getting there, as the West essay kind of suggests or centers, requires a lot of extra parliamentary motion, whether it's rebellions and riots or it's organizing and the building of organizations. And so to be subordinate, to kind of be focused on that. And that's not to suggest that you don't take on reform battles for non-reformist reforms, or you don't take on, you know, you should be centered in people's day-to-day -day struggle and needs, but it's not about fixing issues. It's about building people power. And then the last thing is to um, not to take lawyering or law at face value, not to listen to law stories about itself or judges stories about the law, um, but to understand that just because we're refusing what the law says about itself, that doesn't mean that we don't try to understand the law and then use the law and the legal tools at our disposal to then put it in service of these various um, affirmative and defensive things. Okay, so I want to just say one thing then about like the affirmative and offensive um, or affirmative work. Um, so I think radical lawyering is about practicing law in solidarity with people behind bars, with people who are prosecuted, ticketed, evicted, and deported. Um, and it's and it's to practice law in a way that builds people power and to build us to word. And I think this is really important, especially in abolitionist spaces, to remember that we have to be thinking about how to build a mass politics around what we're doing, because that's the only way that we're going to build um, the world that we're fighting for. Um, and so on the defensive side, if we're thinking about the realm of legal practice, we're thinking about legal services and legal aid, public defender work. We're thinking about the work of the National Lawyers Guild, right? To do mass defense work, legal observing, jail support. This allows movements to kind of reproduce themselves and continue to do the work on the streets. And then on the affirmative side, I think it includes policy work, it includes imagination work, but it also involves, I think, helping to build organizations, um, participating in organizations and helping to build kind of the containers for building um, mass politics. That's super helpful. And we should link to that essay because um, I think that that is a really, it's like a helpful guidepost. One thing that feels important for me when I think about both movement lawyering, which is I think partly what uh, Wes is laying out, um, but also this moment is how important it is that we're clear on our politics. That I think very often, at least like when I was introduced to movement lawyering, um, it was through this lens of like often white men going into communities they didn't belong in or walk from um, and kind of doing like the walk of lawyering. But so much of that was about kind of deference and about um, how they showed up and about being quiet and not kind of engaging in different ways. And so one thing that feels 
really interesting for me about this moment is so many of the folks who LPBL is training and working with are Black folks, are Brown folks, are people of color who often come from the communities they're going back to. And they're coming back with a different level of privilege, for sure, um, with a different positionality, for sure. But they're not kind of white dudes who were never there or who don't have um, the same kind of deep investment of politics, right? Um, and of course, I think there's a place for everybody inside these movements, but I think how we approach movement lawyering and our politics and our place in movement varies based on our identities in some ways. And so one thing that I think we talk a lot about at L4BL is that we're not um, kind of like abstract movement lawyers who belong to any movement. We are lawyers who belong to the movement of Black liberation. And that means that we have our own set of politics that we bring in as movement lawyers. And for us, we really follow the lead of this iteration of Black liberation, which includes, and I say this iteration because as I think Derek mentioned, past iterations have not been um, feminist. They have not been you know, about Black queer feminism. They've not always even been, um, I think, about um, anti-capitalism abolition. But this iteration is. And so we often say at LPBL, the, the kind of set of values that we're trying to really like deepen um, and, and ground ourselves in all around abolition of the prison industrial complex. And I think probably kind of abolition in a more kind of general Du Boisian way as well, but at least of the PIC. Um, and then anti-capitalism, which to be 100 is, I think, the hardest struggle for many of our people. Um, and then Black queer feminism. And then I think doing that through the lens of movement lawyers. So I want to spend a little bit of the next kind of half an hour talking about those three political kind of um, pillars um, and, and your all's thoughts about how you lawyer inside of them, how you, how you personally got to them, what they mean for you. Um, and so I'm going to start with abolition, which I think is like one that has, because as you said, Omna, literally decades of movement building by critical resistance um, and folks who ran Cops Not Cages and Books Not Balls, there's been literally decades of the groundwork of the Rachel Holzings, the Miriam Cabas, who have been really planting these seeds um, of, ab of abolition that now have begun to really bear fruit in the popular imagination. Um, so I think folks know what abolition is, but I'm curious how y'all came to abolition um, and how you see abolition being part of your lawyering practice. And there was a really good question from the audience about defund specifically, suggesting that reforming the police can happen inside of racial capitalism, um, which I think might be like a helpful kind of like touch point for, as y'all answer this question um, around abolition and, and the most kind of current demands. But just interested in how you got here and also um, lawyering and abolition and what that looks like or means. Yeah. Mm. This is what your book is about, Derricka, but okay. okay. Um. <laughs> to Derricka's book. I was so eager to do this thing so <laughs> that my immaturity prevailed. Sorry. Do you want to go first? No. <laughs> okay. I need to think about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so in terms of my path, um, I went to law school, uh, like the first year was 9-11, and I'm from a Muslim family, I'm Muslim, um, and that meant when I graduated, um, you know, the kind of, the contemporary kind of national security state was taking shape, and there was a lot of um, policing targeted, a lot of extra policing targeted at 
Muslim communities, which include obviously, you know, which are multiracial, so include black, brown, white, Latinx, et cetera, everyone. Um, and so I started doing legal work to, after I graduated, um, to, in solidarity with Muslim communities in different ways, both like representing people who were um, disappeared abroad in prisons run by the United States or its allies, um, and working with Muslim communities in New York City when the feds or the local police working with the feds were knocking on people's doors and doing New York rights presentations and things like that. Um, and then when I went to the academy, it felt important to kind of, um, you know, start to write about that policing and to situate the policing of Muslims after 9-11 as part of a long history of policing of black and brown people, but also political formations that the state sees as threatening. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that makes lawyers peculiar, and I think this is true for lawyers in general and law faculty as well, is um, we tend to see ourselves and we often function as adjacent to the state apparatus. And so we're always kind of telling the state how to function better, which often leads to some of these terrible arguments that we make. Um, and so, in, in, so when I would give talks or write papers about, um, you know, this kind of system, people would always ask me about policing of Muslims after 9-11, like, how do you fix it? You didn't write about the reform that will like remedy this thing. And I just didn't, I would kind of find, I'm, you know, I'm trained as a lawyer, so I'm good at kind of uh, navigating questions. And so I would find ways to kind of like not answer the question because I just couldn't see a way to, you know, like fix the system, which was based not just on centuries of policing, but also on, um, you know, uh, deeply misplaced um, fear of Muslims that was fundamentally antagonistic to Muslim people. And so how to reform that fear and the policies that are promulgated, not to mention questions of global political economy. Like, it just seemed like, I don't know how to answer this question for you. And so then when I met, um, you know, abolitionist organizers, and specifically it was Rachel Hertzing and Silky Shaw, um, you know, and started hearing and learning about abolition as a different kind of, as a response that says, yes, no, these systems cannot be fixed. They're doing not just what they were meant to do, but what people populating them right now are wanting them to do and at literally doing. Um, it immediately kind of created some space to think about how to move differently and that there is a different way to think about how to respond. And it's not about reforming the system. It's about um, shrinking the space that it takes up, building the power of people to contest it and then to build alternatives. Um, and so that was that that is a there's multiple chapters and my journey is ongoing. It's not ended. But that was kind of like a big part of um, what happen, you know, how, how kind of like I came to abolition. And then on this question about doesn't defund suggest um, you can, and something about its relationship to racial capitalism. I mean, I think um, this in a sense is the question of like, do we fight for reforms or what kind of demands do we make of the system? And I think, um, you know, part of that depends on your theory of social change. Like if you're committed to revolutionary politics right now, and you think that 
Um, you know, for example, people could take up arms right now and kind of overthrow the U.S. government or the system of prisons and police, then, okay, fine, maybe we don't need to engage in struggles of reform. Um, but I think, or you could believe that, you know, you can work through the parliamentary system, maybe by pressure brought to, be, you know, brought to bear through extra parliamentary means, which is to say through social movements, rebellions, riot campaigns, um, you know, then you could have some sort of mixed theory. But I think in the history of left social movements and organizing struggles for reforms and what reform, you know, what kind of reform is a different question, but for reforms have been essential to building solidarity with people, um, organizing organizations, making demands and getting wins so that you can then build the power of your organizations and your movements. And so um, the reason why defund, I think, is really compelling, even if it doesn't do all of the work to get us to abolition um, is precisely because it is a non-reformist reform in my view, by which I mean um, it makes it harder for the current order to reproduce itself. It suggests a different kind of world, right? So now we're having more conversations about what public safety means. Um, and because defund came out of this mass mobilization on the streets, it shows a kind of shifting of power around questions of policing, alternate conceptions of public safety, the shape of the state. Um, so away from the ruling class and the system of the carceral state toward the working class, towards poor people, LGBTQ people, black and brown people, um, et cetera. And so um, I don't think there's a way to function outside of the system. And I think we also need to think about how to make demands as a way to organize with people. Um, and I think defund is really powerful in that way. I, I love that so, so much. I want to start there, but it may make sense to start backwards and then and then get there. So... Wow, I don't even know where to to start. Maybe um, maybe in college. And so when I was in college, Chris Kobach was a law professor where I went to undergrad. And around the time he was passing, or he was authoring rather, all of these anti-immigration bills, these pro-border bills, right? The Do I Look Illegal Bill, SB 1020, that was uh, 1040, 1020, I'm like, now this is like 12 years ago. I, I, I'm having a hard time remembering the bill number. I think it was SB 1020 and it was in Arizona and it empowered local police departments there to stop people on the on the suspicion of them being undocumented. But back then we would say legal. And I didn't have a context or an analysis around policing generally. Like I knew policing, police to be racist kind of towards black people, but I didn't really have context for policing and border work until I started meeting student activists in this group called Mecha. And so Mecha, we would like do actions, we would protest against whenever Kobach did something, we protested this rally. And that's why I was just like, oh wow, like, there is an entire policing regime around immigration. And that was the first time I had a broad political analysis around policing. Um, and I, by the time, I guess that was 2010. So by the time 2014 happens, most of my most of what I read around the institution of policing had been in the immigration context. It, it had not been like, like, like as a, in a, as a labor analysis, it had not been through a slavery analysis that had been around immigration, and so I had 
you know, I know this to be true. I know that people in my neighborhood call police slave catchers, modern day slave catchers. But I really didn't know the history of policing. I didn't know the the function of policing. I understood Marxism and capitalism and socialism, but I didn't have political commitments to any of these. There were cool topics I learned about when I studied economics. Like that, that is sort of what it was. Um, and so then when... When Darren Wilson killed Michael Brown, I was literally in St. Louis on my way to law school because I thought I was going to be an education attorney. And then there's this entire movement that erupts around police violence. And so by the, when I start law school, I am just incredibly lucky to be surrounded by people who had politics that were much more radical than mine, much more left than mine, who were much more curious than my own. And because of that group of organizers on and off campus, because of spaces like Law for Black Lives that was forming and developing while I was in law school, that was I had the privilege to be a part of, I was pushed to do political education, to think more critically about the relationship between police and all sorts of communities. But abolition didn't actually come later. The first sort of political analysis that I started developing or rather being pushed around was decolonization. And because there were all these movements happening in other parts of the world, all of these student movements happening in South Africa and in Brazil and the Netherlands, and they were called decolonization movements. And students were demanding free education. They were demanding land, true democracy, people-centered democracy. And so I had gone to these other countries and met other student organizers. And by the time I got back to to the United States, I was like, wow, we're trying to get a diversity office and they're asking for the land? Y'all, we gotta like, we gotta do something. We gotta switch up these demands. This is not lit. Like we crying to get our, to get law schools to send emails because people are getting killed. We could be demanding something so much more transformational. We could set um, our intentions on acquiring something that could radically and fundamentally change the kind of people we are the kind of communities we have and whatever happens with the land between these borders. And so it was actually learning, understanding and developing a commitment to internationalism and international solidarity that pushed me to think more critically about decolonization. And through the transformation of our student movements, which I think initially began quite liberal with some of the demands that we wanted to make us more safe or more comfortable or feel seen as the phrase goes now, you know, people want to feel a scene. Um, that's sort of what we were demanding. And because these other students had impacted me and some LLMs, we completely changed our student movement and we decided to undergo political education. And we began implementing many of the radical demands that we want to ourselves. And it was through that political education that I came to abolition now I started reading Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Rachel Herzen and Robin Kelly and Fred Moden and Angela Davis, all these people who I had heard about, had known, even had met. You know, I met Angela Davis when I was in college. I didn't know she was an abolitionist. I thought she was a Black Panther, right? Because that's what my mama told me. So that's the story that I had. And so when I came to um, Angela Davis later, years later, I was like, oh, okay, like this is someone who's organizing against prisons. Like she's in a particular tradition of organizers, um, academics who are trying to undermine oppression. And since then, my ideas around abolition have shifted so much 
like what I think the purpose of abolition is, what I think the limitations of abolition is. And so, for example, this question around defund, where is it? It's like, doesn't defund suggest that reforming police within racial capitalism is possible? I don't know. Maybe it can. It can suggest that. Right. But the more I read the boys, the more I started understanding the anti-slavery movement, the more I realized that even the abolitionists that we call that we model ourselves after, they were capitalists. They were pro-steel. They were pro-Pennsylvania iron. They were pro-colonization. They were calling for the abolition of slavery while also actively still in Hawaii. They thought that it would be okay to redistribute land that they stole from indigenous people in the U.S. and to give it to black people. They were trying to figure out how to incorporate black people into a capitalist system in order to better exploit them to increase profits for capitalism. So you also can say, doesn't abolition then suggest that freedom is possible within racial capitalism? And it's like, yeah, of course you can, but I will hope that the people who are asking those sorts of questions say we need to defund and we need to invest. We need to eradicate the prison industrial complex and we need to eradicate racial capitalism. It requires both at the same time, over time towards liberation. We cannot have one without the other. And so my, my understanding of capitalism it started impacting my understanding of abolition. And I was like, oh, we have to be different kinds of abolitionists. There's so many beautiful things in that history that we can beg and borrow and steal and be in that tradition. And then we also have to figure out how to forge our own traditions of abolition that take into consideration disability justice and decolonization, the climate justice and climate environmental justice activism. We have to be in solidarity against xenophobia. There are all these other systems that we have the luxury of learning those traditions and being and building the world that we want that departs from the traditions of abolition that we borrow from. And so that's why I'm always trying to get towards like what kinds of abolition is necessary for our time right now. And if we don't figure out what that is, it's gonna be significantly harder for the people ahead of us to figure out what it means for them. Yes, please preach that. I just, two things that that really resonate with me that you both shared. And they okay, this idea around like you don't know till you know. And I think often about after Ferguson, I was part of developing a toolkit and body cameras is in the toolkit. And I, I think I knew better at the time anyway, but this idea of like what is in our realm to demand, like what actually we can like lean into feels like, it feels like an act of bravery sometimes. Like actually like we can ask for more. And I think that it really requires that we stretch ourselves and we believe in the power um, of our people and of our movements to do that. But I just like, I want to I think, like, say, Echo and Ashe, this idea of, like, there are folks who are so much braver than we are across the globe. And when we, like, learn from them and allow ourselves to also imagine something beyond what we've seen, um, it's such a powerful moment. And I think that that also goes for past movements, that so many of our movements um, can offer us so much in terms of um, a horizon of freedom. But the reality is we have yet to see a movement that would liberate trans folks and Black women and, like, the kind of full uh, disability folks, like, the full array of folks. Actually, no past movement, um, including Includes all of them. And so what, what is the invitation for all movement and all moment to name explicitly our politics? So I just, I want to appreciate 
um, both of that. And I also want to say like not assuming the other. And so the reason why we say we are abolitionists and anti-capitalists and black queer feminists is because none of those by themselves assume the other one. That you can be an abolitionist and be hella capitalist, as you said, in all sorts of ways, right? Um, and that actually is the tradition of this movement. You can be, um, you know, a black queer feminist and not be an abolitionist necessarily, although I think that's a little bit harder. Um, and and a capitalism, I think, is also a super important that you can be in a capitalist and still not be an abolitionist. And so we like it is like those things in combination and disability justice is another really important one that I think we have to name explicitly. So thank you for that and for the brilliant answers. Um, I want to ask about capitalism, but I don't know Omna, if you want to add or say anything, any pluses to what's been said. Um, I guess the only thing I would add is just because this has been useful to me, and it took me a while to puzzle it out, and maybe it's relevant to the audience, which is, I think when we're imagining an alternative or we're, you know, kind of demanding abolition, like, one of the things we're saying is, like, society or the state should be organized very differently. And I know that we are not getting into, like, the state anarchism question right now, but, um, but like, one, like, kind of way that is helpful to me to kind of think about two different buckets of things that we're talking about is like one is that how do we meet people's needs, whether it's for like housing, food, healthcare, schooling. Um, and then the second question is how do we deal with conflict? Right. And those are kind of, they're interrelated of course, because right now, um, you know, we deal with, we use prisons and police and jails to deal with all of those things. Um, but they seem like kind of distinct and, there, and people are running different kinds of experiments within abolitionist organizing around both of those things. I really appreciate um, those two as kind of like guidepost questions. Um, so anti-capitalism. So another value that we at L4BL strive for um, is around anti-capitalism. I don't know why we don't say socialism. I guess because there's like a different conversation on kind of socialism versus communism, which we won't have today, but we will save that in anarchy for a future conversation. Um, but I think, you know, to be honest with you, I think that part of why we say anti-capitalism is because this is one of the hardest pills to swallow for our lawyers, for our law students, especially, I mean, for, I think, all the folks we engage with, that we often are in spaces with folks like, yes, 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 but also, if I get rich and my people get rich, we're going to be good. Like, we're going to, that's how we find freedom, right? That there's a real tradition of that as well. Well, where the money resides, that's, that's <laughs> literally where the money resides. <laughs> Um, so I think it's 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 been honestly one of the shopper learning edges, um, both for I think like us um, in leadership of L4BL, um, for me personally, but also for like the trainings we do and our members. Um, I think the two things come up. So one is that um, you know a lot of folks really do think because we come from um, from spaces of need, from spaces of deprivation, that money feels like one way that we get free. And we've seen, like we see what money, not having money does for our people. Um, and so there's this idea that if we get money, um, that we get more freedom. And we also see people um, who take and steal and thieve our money um, are often in the safest positions. And so I think there's a way in which that becomes, we want to emulate that. I think secondly, though, is that whenever we actually engage in study, and again, shout out 
um, to kind of all the teachers and I think critical resistance um, and major housing has been a teacher for this, but also many of the folks who I count kind of in the abolitionist camp also are doing more and more education on anti-capitalism, um, but left roots and folks who were doing this for years. But the reality is that capitalism that assumes the disposability of some people, that that is at its heart, um, that also requires violence, genocide, land theft as the beginnings of markets, that you can't actually begin the capitalist venture without those things or continue it or sustain it. Um, and that really relies on a surplus of labor that cannot exist alongside liberation, that it's more and more clear to us um, that we have to get rid of capitalism, we have to undermine capitalism if we have any chance of getting free, or quite frankly, even abolishing um, the PIC or other systems. And so I'm curious, a lot of the questions we get is kind of, if not capitalism, then what? What does it mean to be an anti-capitalist loyal? Like, do I have to like give away all my stuff? Like, what does that consist of? A lot of those kinds of questions, I think about like, what does it mean to live inside of a value system of anti-capitalism, to be critical of capitalism, to believe in and to um, to try to push um, and manifest socialism and other values. So just really interesting. I think there's actually a pretty robust legacy of socialist lawyers and legal workers um, who have really done what I think you laid out on that in terms of creating space, doing defensive work, supporting movements, um, especially because all the ways that I think we talked about um, the criminal legal system um, really legitimizing itself inside of these trials has often been used against socialism as well, that they've used the weapons of the state um, to suppress socialist movements. And so really interested in y'all's thoughts about anti-capitalism and socialism and communism, um, kind of where y'all stand or sit with that, um, and how you think lawyers and legal workers can move the dial on that and why it's important. You want to do the hands, Derica? I think it's Derica's turn to go first now. <laughs> Is it? Really? Um, okay, so... I understand capitalism to be a system that categorizes people for profit and it categorizes people on the basis of race and disability and gender, um, all these demographics that we're familiar with. And it's it categorizes us for the purposes of exploiting us or extracting things from us and, and from excluding us from the labor market too, which is why I've been learning. I've been spending much more time recently learning about the exclusion aspect. Um, yeah, I think that it's very important for lawyers to understand and to have uh, an analysis around capitalism and to be anti-capitalist because many of the reforms specifically around policing, but we can use honestly lots of reforms towards improving the lives of, of people that we care about, people that we're fighting for their liberation. What will often happen is that we'll see reforms being pushed in the mainstream and there's lots of, lots of excitement around them. And then when I'll look at the reform, I'll look at the bill, I'll look at the act, I'll look at the measure, and it would be completely divorced from any concept of our economic system that's responsible for so much social harm. And so what happens is that you have a system of policing and prisons and prosecutors and surveillance that's happening on top of an economic system that's exploitative, that's extractive and that's exclusionary, right? It creates haves and haves nots. It creates ins and outs. It creates people who are housed and people who are homeless. It creates people on one side of the borders and it puts people on a different side of the borders, right? Police, prisons, prosecutor surveillance manage that system. They manage who's exploited. They manage who is excluded. They manage whose labor and time is extracted from them. 
And so if you don't have analysis or any analyses around that process, a reform would sound great because you would assume that we can improve the relationship between Border Patrol and the people who are trying to cross a border. You would say we need more diverse Border Patrol agents, right? We need better, we need a kinder, friendly, as Alex Vitale says, a more kindly, friend, kinder, more friendly, diverse, gentler war on the poor, right? But if you understand that lots of social harm is rooted in economic inequality and exploitation and capitalism and colonization, then you will understand that the police are there to manage that. And so we don't need nicer police departments or better prisons or more cooler feature robot dogs that we see in New York City. We need to eradicate the social inequality, the economic inequality, while we're also eliminating the prison industrial complex. And so right now with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that's been circulating like wildfire, people are excited because it's, wow, we actually get to have a chance for a progressive bill to get, not progressive rather, Comprehensive, a comprehensive bill that gets to be packaged because comprehensive is is more neutral, right? It doesn't have any politics. It just means that a lot of stuff is in it. So we have a comprehensive bill that people are excited about to hold officers accountable. But hold officers or cops accountable in doing what? What is it that they're doing? They don't get to the bottom of the issue, which is Derek Chauvin, stop George Floyd, because someone at a convenience store called the police over the use of a twenty-fifth counter, counterfeit twenty-dollar bill, right? That bit, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has no relationship to the inequality that caused the encounter in the first place. So then we have lawyers saying this is a step forward, this is the way, this is how we get justice without attending to the basis of these encounters. You're being completely dismissive of the system that empowers policing in the first place. And so it's so draining and it's frustrating (laughs) that people, I don't want to say are not making those connections because it takes time for a lot of us to make those connections, but the people who should know better, the people who are choosing to ignore because they benefit from being a manager, they benefit from being in the, in the courtroom, they benefit from being the lawyers who get to stand next to the families and say, we're fighting for justice. They get to benefit by adding more and more tools and more and more legitimacy to a legal system while completely ignoring the economic system that serves as the foundation for the violence that we experience from the prison industrial complex. So the more that lawyers understand capitalism, colonialism, these systems of oppression that are tied to land, labor, time, um, wealth, inequality, it's so, so, so important. And not in the sense that, not in the way that I learned in law school, that it's your duty as a lawyer to represent an an indigent client, right? To represent people who are poor, to, to be their savior. No, 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 no. We need to understand why people are poor in the first place. We have to understand that concentrated poverty is a consequence of concentrated wealth, that we are so used to talking about poverty and poor people as if they happen in a vacuum, right? It's like, well, no, social relations, tax law, people are triggered and cram over sexual violence and murder. We need to be triggered in tax. Like that's where all that, those are the laws that 
are able to concentrate all the power, but no one is asking for trigger warnings in our corporate in our corporations class. No one's asking for trigger warnings in our tax classes, right? That's where the that's those that's where students learn how to concentrate power, wealth, and inequality um, in corporations and people by preserving how power how property, how labor relations gets passed down from one group of people to another. And so it's indispensable to adopt the analysis around capitalism. And I'm, I feel fortunate that jailhouse lawyers, political prisoners, when you read their work, they are constantly tying political economy to the law. You read George Jackson, you read Mumia, you read and understand what they're doing. They're constantly tying. You read Move, you understand that they're not only calling out racist pigs, they're calling out capitalists. Everyone loves Fred Hampton now because he's so cool. Everyone got their black berets. People watching Judas and the Black Messiah. But one thing that I love about Fred Hampton is in his speech where he says, you know, we made a mistake. Black Panthers made a mistake. We were saying white, we were saying white men when we should have been saying capitalists. We made a mistake. And so I love the humility. I love the political curiosity that we see in people who've been incarcerated, people who are organizing in our radical traditions, who see these systems as intimately connected. I think there's much to learn from them. So one of the key insights of Marxism that I learned a lot from um, is that, you know, mainstream liberal discourse, there's this idea that the economy is separate from politics, that private and public are different, that law is separate from the market, um, that the workplace is somehow distinct or separate somehow from um, the rest of politics. But Marxism insists on the way that these things constitute one another, um, that politics, economy, and the social are, you know, co-constituted. They make up one another. Um, And you see, just like in the way Derrico was saying, you see reflections of this in abolitionist material. So for example, critical resistance's definition of the prison industrial complex encompasses the fact that the PIC is not simply those things that are owned by the government, but it also includes private companies that make the technologies or hire the, con- you know, like hire out the contract staff, et cetera. Um, or you see it in the vision for black lives in the way that, for example, in the demand to end the war on black people, there's also a recognition that it's not just institutions that the government runs that perpetuate anti-blackness, but it's also the system of capitalism and corporations and so on. Um, so I think that's really important to start. Um, Being anti-capitalist requires having an understanding of capitalism and a theory of how we overcome it and what we're building instead. And I think answering all those questions, um, you know, requires all of us and much longer than like the next five minutes or whatever. But I'll want to just build a little bit on what Derrica um, was saying. So the question of like, what is capitalism, I think is actually contested and people will define it in different ways. But here are some things that I know about it. Um, It's an economic, political, and social system that relies on private property, wage labor, and the market economy, in which most people can't survive without relying on the market, in which stuff is produced for sale on the market as commodity, so food, housing, and healthcare, for sale and for profit, rather than for people to either consume themselves or to serve people's needs, in which most of us don't own what we need to survive. 
so that what we have available to us to sell and make a wage and then buy things that we need to survive is our labor. And in which those who own the means of production reap most of the profits, despite the fact that most of the work and therefore the value is created by those who labor, the working class. And all of that relies on, in the way that Derrico was saying, racialization and racism, gender and the heteronormative family, histories of enslavement, colonialism, and imperialism, to expropriate people's land and labor, to divide the working class across race and gender, to devalue disabled people, to depress wages in like this uneven way. And that relies on the state to serve the interests of the ruling class. And this is where the question of law becomes or part of what makes it so tricky, including through military, prisons, and police to repress rebellion and contestation. Um, and through creating ideas that make it seem as if the world around us is inevitable, just, and righteous, or relatively good, even if it needs some tweaking on the edges. And so the reason why, well, so and then to be anti-capitalist is to seek to abolish the social, economic, and political relationships that create capital. And it's to be committed to people having power over the conditions of their lives and the fruits of their labor to build a society where people's needs are met, to have time for leisure and love, to be committed to mass politics, to understand the powerful forces against redistribution, and to understand that the object of our contestation, yes, it's prisons, police, and surveillance, but it's also this larger system in which it rests that makes it possible, that makes it necessary, system of racialization, gender, colonialism, and capitalism. And so in terms of how can lawyers kind of think about this or integrate this, again, I think that's like a bigger conversation, but I'll offer um, two things. One is that the concept of the non-reformist reform actually comes out of, you know, we we use it today in abolitionist thinking in really important ways, but it has a history in long debates among socialists and communists about how to wage reform struggles as a way to build mass politics. And so um, the in the mid-20th century, this philosopher Andre Gores coins this term, and part of what he talks about in his formulation of non-reformist reform is a reform that undermines the ability of capitalism. So not the prison or police, which is what we tend to focus on abolitionist discourse, but how to undermine the ability of capitalism to reproduce itself how to bring socialism closer into being, and how to build the democratic domains or democratic power of the working class. Um, and so I think it's important for us to think about that way of formulating non-reformist reforms in addition to kind of the conventional abolitionist way, what has become the conventional abolitionist way to think about reform. One resource I just wanted to recommend to people, I think everything that there, I think there's a lot of materials that the Red Nation is putting out that's really helpful on this stuff, including podcasts and reports, the Red Deal. Um, they put out a recent paper on their commitment to communism. They have an elaboration of non-reformist reforms in the Red Deal, which I think is useful. And I'm just going to read it and I'll end here. Our philosophy of reform is to reallocate social wealth back to those who actually produce it, 
workers, the poor, indigenous peoples, the global South, women, migrants, caretakers of the land and the land itself. By fighting for non-reformist reforms in and with our most vulnerable communities, we will drain power and resources from state surveillance and harm and reinvest these resources and the well-being of all. I love that. And I'm, I think we can drop a link to some of the work that they're doing, which is incredible and feels like a really helpful guidepost as folks navigate this. I want to um, bring up one question from, um, from folks who are watching, and then we'll close out with kind of brief thoughts around movement lawyering. So the question is, would undermining patents and intellectual property help us gut capitalism? So I feel like this is like a like a thunder round or whatever it's called, we're just going to answer fast. Lightning is the word we use. Um, but if either of y'all have thoughts about that, like a minute or less. And again, would undermining patents or intellectual property help gut capitalism? I think struggles to decommodify things and make them available to people according to need are really important. Um, one of the things I've actually learned from Borvi um, Shah um, is kind of like this, um, you know, like one of the ways that lawyers get trained is to kind of like identify or prioritize issues according to what we think is right, what we should focus on. But one of the things about movement lawyers that makes us different is we strive to orient ourselves towards militancy and grassroots organizing and contestation. So it's not to suggest that IP is not important. And to the extent we've been seeing struggles around um, revoking the patents, and I don't know all the IP language, so I might be getting it wrong, but around the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Around the vaccines, like uh, to the extent we're seeing organizing around this, and that's a demand for people to say, you know, let's respond to this vaccine in a way that meets people's needs rather than builds the um, profit of these pharmaceutical companies. I think absolutely it's important. Yes. And just seamless, I think, to what is my last question, um, which is around movement lawyering. And I think you really sped it out and it's been kind of touched on throughout this conversation. Um, but the idea that lawyering, using your legal tools um, to empower, to build the power, to shift power, to support grassroots movements um, who are on the front lines of struggle um, and to, to use your legal skills to actually craft arguments um, to support the building of those movements um, is at the heart of movement lawyering. Um, and I think it often is that we do very similar things that other lawyers, we do them for different reasons and at different directions. And so I'm curious from both of y'all, is there one or two kind of pieces or nuggets um, that y'all have developed or hold in your journey as movement lawyers about what it is that movement lawyers do that's different um, from other lawyers, um, whether it's who we listen to, who we're accountable to, um, but just any nuggets you have around how folks can sharpen their commitment really to following the leadership, the strategies of movement and using legal tools as one of many tools um, to do that. Yes, I can think of one very specific one. So it's having a political home, which is why it's so great that you're doing a, a membership drive. I have so many friends who I love and like fight with over all sorts of stuff from literally like scandal to clients that they represent, right? And what I've found is that there are people who I know and I sure at many points this was me too, especially since I've only been a lawyer for four years, if you can believe it, like four years, so much time has gone by. Um, we often, our hearts would be in the right place 
right? But our political analyses won't match like where our heart is, if that makes sense. There's a mismatch between what the work that we want to do in the world, and then we won't connect that to any broader vision or any broader struggle to, towards liberation. And so having one political home, having several political homes always keep me grounded around the direction that I'm supposed to be moving in. And so it's it's different because, again, lawyers are often told, especially if you're in public defense, if you're a community lawyer, if you work in a nonprofit, that you're on the side of freedom and justice. And I know people who will use that nonprofit job as their political home, but they're, they're different things that you cannot do at your nonprofit nine to five that you can do in your political home, right? And so I think having a place where you're accountable to people, where you are reading together, where you're struggling around an idea or a politic or a practice, you're experimenting with something, it's so, so, so important because we need more people to have the flexibility to do political work that's not tied to the labor that they're selling for a check. And that can be hard because all the lawyers I know work really hard. They work really long hours. They care passionately about their clients. They care passionately about justice. And now to say that, well, in addition to all your passion, in addition to all your lawyering, you're in Zoom court. You also need to have a political home that's an organization where you probably show up once a week or once a month and y'all are reading together. Y'all are experimenting with something together. When someone harms someone in that space, you're responsible for helping to provide safety or figure out accountability. If abolition, if anti-capitalism, if disability justice, if these things are going to fully come alive, then we have to become better people. And become better people means we have to practice being better people in the spaces that we are. Political home is one place. Your family is another place. (laughs) Don't be a woke movement lawyer in a political home and you're not practicing these things in your family, right? And so I think I am so fortunate for the people who keep me accountable. When I say something, when I move, those are people I check in with before I put things out into the world. And so I think every lawyer, especially lawyer who care about freedom and justice, should have a political home. Thank you so much. I share that. Ahmed, you have a quick... Yes, I know we don't have very much time. So I'll just say two things. I agree with everything Derricka said. That's the number one thing. Um, but two other things. One is we pay attention to power. Who has the power? How do we shift the power toward the people? And the second thing is just, I think there's a bad habit among lawyers, like any professional class, to not question yourself or what you're doing very often. And I think movement lawyers need to um, reflect critically on everything and in the context of collective kind of context. So within your organizations or your movement formations. I love it. Um, So first of all, thank you all so, so much. I always feel sharpened by our conversations and by your brilliance and like the way you all can break it down. So thank you. Thank you to our ASL interpreters. um, And thank you to Haymarket Books who hosted this and made it pretty and dope. Um, I want to just end with the invitation. Um, I think that 
what you both shared around what are some kind of principles or practices of movement lawyers from having a political home to self-assessment and critique um, to really paying attention to power and sharpening our skills um, are all things that L4BL is is striving to create with our membership. And so we really, really, really um, want to invite you in to that membership. And there are lots of benefits of it. I think one of one of our hopes is that we can collectively hold each other in this moment um, and really be able to build and implement power together. And so there will be um, offerings, political education offerings, there'll be offerings of strategizing spaces to bring um, your own issues, your own challenges, um, and use kind of the brilliance of other folks to solve them. Um, and more than anything, there's a community of folks who really are here um, to support each other and, and, and believe in liberation and want to grow inside of it. And so please check us out. Um, we are at www.law4blacklives.org backslash membership. I think we'll also drop it um, in all the different ways you might be watching this. Um, and please take up our invitation um, and continue to study and to be and to support movement um, and believe the power of the people. So thank you all so, so much. Thank you, Derica. Thank you, Amna. Thank you, everybody. Um, have a beautiful night. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.